Afghanistan remains the big subject this weekend. Does Joe Biden know what he's talking about? And what is Kamala Harris laughing about? It's all ahead on Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. We got a lot to talk about, a lot to agree and disagree on. Vince, what do we have for today? Well, uh, here's one thing I know we both agree on. People should like and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you for those of you who have already done it. And please make sure to like, subscribe, share, and comment on the YouTube channel. That would be the Daily Caller's YouTube channel. So you can see our smiling faces uh, when these things come out. Be careful, though. Do not watch us while you're driving. It's very distracting. Um, I want to... Uh, Share with you, uh, uh, I think, one of the big headlines from the weekend. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, uh, Jason, was on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. And Wallace basically laid out like, hey, here's all these things that Joe Biden said that don't precisely square with reality. Does the president actually know what he's talking about? So here's the, uh, the question and answer from uh, Chris Wallace and Tony Blinken. This is Secretary, does the president not know what's going on? This is an incredibly emotional time uh, for for many of us uh, and including allies and partners who've been shoulder to shoulder with us in Afghanistan for 20 years uh, at high cost to themselves as well as to us. They stood with us after 9-11, invoked Article 5 of NATO for the first time. An attack on one is an attack on all. And we've been there together. But I've got to tell you this, Chris, from the get go, uh, I've spent more time with our NATO partners in Brussels virtually uh, from before the president made his decision to when he made his decision to every time since. We've been working very, very closely together. We've gotten the G7 together, NATO together, the UN Security Council together. We had 113 countries, thanks to our diplomacy, uh, put out a a clear understanding uh, of the Taliban's requirements to let people leave the country. Sir, respectfully, look, I'm I'm not questioning whether or not the allies have a right to complain. I'm not questioning whether or not Al Qaeda has a presence. The president said Al Qaeda is gone. It's not gone. The president said he's not heard any criticism from the allies. There's been a lot of criticism from the allies. Words matter, and the words of the president matter most. Chris, all I can tell you is what what I've heard. And again, this is a powerfully emotional time for a lot of allies and partners, as it is for me, as it is for us. But I've also heard this. I've heard across the board deep appreciation and thanks from allies and partners for everything that we've done to bring our allies and partners out of harm's way. This has been a remarkable part of the effort. I've seen them stand up, step up uh, to to help out, including, as I said, agreements with more than two dozen countries now uh, to help on transit. And beyond that, we're very focused together uh, on the way forward, uh, including the way forward in Afghanistan and setting very clear expectations for the Taliban. Okay, Jason, the thing that really stands out to me about that clip is why can't the secretary of state simply say, yeah, the president's following every detail and is trying to make sure to get Americans out of the country. He doesn't ever refer to uh, Biden's attention to detail in his answer. Well, I I think what he was trying to get across uh, was, you know, Chris Wallace, who who is a tough interviewer and I think uh, one of the more fair journalists uh, in Washington. Um, you know, when you watch Chris Wallace, he goes after everybody. And of course, the right erupts when he holds uh, the right wing a- accountable. And, you know, the left kind of expects because he's on Fox News that he's going to do that uh, to left wing officials or members of the Biden administration. And, and I applaud him for doing it to everybody. 
Um, reminds me of Tim, Tim Russert and some of the old school journalists that used to do that. Now everyone wants to give high fives to their side. Um, and I think what he was trying to say was really to answer the substance of the question, not, you know, this kind of gotcha, you know, Biden is unfit. He doesn't know what's going on. He's leaning on everyone else. I mean, first of all, they say that about every president. We certainly heard a whole lot of it from the about the last administration that the president really didn't know what was going on, that he didn't read. And, you know, there's some of that I believe, but some of it, I, you know, I think is exaggerated. And I think it's a lot of it is exaggerated in this case. I think, you know, uh, presidents a lot of times speak in hyperbole because they want to get a point across. I think, uh, you know, for example, Joe Biden said Al Qaeda is gone. Uh, what he meant was that they are severely diminished, that they don't have the same capabilities that they once had. Uh, same thing with ISIS. And I and like I said, I think you have to give credit to the Trump administration for uh, disabling ISIS. You know, uh, all these administrations, the last two two and a half administrations, I would say two really, um, disabled Al Qaeda. Well, I, I, you know, more so the, the uh, Obama administration. So I think, you know, uh, what Tony Blinken is trying to answer is more about what people in NATO are saying what mm -hmm. people you know uh, are saying about al-Qaeda or the, what the president said about al-Qaeda and trying to clear that record rather than making this fallacious or this, I won't even say fallacious is the wrong word, but uh, this kind of distraction uh, that the right goes with. Um, and Chris Wallace, while he's being a good journalist, he's also trying to find a little bit of red meat, um, which is Biden is really competent. He really knows what's going on. He's, you know, I think Tony Blinken, being the professional that he is, is saying, look, that should be a given. The president knows uh -huh. what's going on, but the president is speaking in hyperbole because he is uh, a politician. But at the same time, here's what's going on on the ground. We right. know that ISIS is diminished. We know Al Qaeda is diminished. And we know that our NATO allies actually thank us for, for how we're handling things or how we've handled things over the last 15 years. So- the thing is, though, that Blinken didn't say anything about Biden specifically. I just thought, I found that interesting. I mean, reflect normally in any if any um, cabinet members being challenged about the president's competency, uh, you would normally expect that they would say, yeah, he's all over this thing. He's on top of all the details. He's he's asking all the right questions, you know, that kind of thing. Blinken didn't say any of that. Blinken kind of defaulted to, oh, we're doing everything we can. Uh, and I found that interesting. You know, the other part of this is like it. It would be one thing if it was just like the right was lobbying, lobbying allegations against Biden here about his competence in handling um, Afghanistan. But what's actually going on here broadly is there's a lot of bipartisan condemnation and a lot of bipartisan questions that sound a lot like what Chris Wallace just asked. So, for instance, um, last week uh, you had the president assert, uh, I believe it was on Friday when he spoke to the press, answered some questions that Americans weren't having trouble getting to the airport in Kabul. Well, almost every major news network in the United States had um, correspondents who were on the ground who were indicating, no, that's not true at all. Like that, that basically the Biden was uh, projecting an alternate reality to the one that was actually the true reality on the ground. Americans having tremendous difficulties getting uh, through the Taliban line and ultimately to the airport in Kabul. Uh, the claims about the allies being very supportive uh, of late and that he's only heard positive things. 
uh, obviously flies directly in the face of the condemnation we've seen from places like the United Kingdom, where the parliament voted to hold Joe Biden in contempt last week uh, for the drawdown in Afghanistan. You know, Biden in his interview with um, George Stephanopoulos on Wednesday had said simple things like, well, we don't have any troops in Syria, he said. We do have a troop presence in Syria. We have just under a thousand troops in Syria. So when Chris Wallace asks the question, hey, does the president know what's going on? Normally, again, I would expect a cabinet secretary to respond. Oh yeah, he's, he's following all the details and asking all the right questions. Uh, but I, I was very, it was very noticeable the extent to which Blinken evaded the answer to that question. Yeah, I, I guess we're, we're just gonna um, disagree on that. Um, and, and the reason, like I said, the reason that I'm disagreeing is that I really, when, when I listen to that interview, I wanna know the substance of what's going on rather than is the, you know, is the president plugged in? I mean, the president is answering questions about this every day, you just pointed that out. Um, is he getting some details uh, wrong on, in some respects. Yeah. I mean, I think he probably is hearing because we know how these things work. World leaders are oftentimes patting the backs of American presidents and American leadership. And then they go on their news channels and say, Oh, death to America. Like, you know, uh, I think we've seen that many times. Um, so I think, you know, Tony Blinken is, is speaking to the details that Americans want to know. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the approach that he's taking rather than talking about the competence of the, of the president. And he also knows the political nature, I think, of talking about Biden's competence. We know that the right has been really successful at painting Joe Biden as this kind of bumbling, you know, gaff machine fool who doesn't know his left from his right, that he's senile that he's you know all of these kinds of things these are these are things that the the right wing media machine has been really successful at um by catching some small viral moment um and you and i have talked about this i think we talked about this like maybe a couple minutes before the show about you know i'm i'm not a fan of that kind of stuff when it's like, oh, Joe Biden misspeaks or he stammers and all of a sudden we're saying he's senile or Trump has trouble walking down as a 75-year-old man walking down a plank that we're going to say, oh, look, he's got some sort of health issue. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. I think we should stick to the issues. And I think that's what Tony Blinken was trying to do. All right. I know we got some other cl clips we want to get to from this weekend. Um... Jason, I, I know you wanted to hit uh, on uh, some stuff that you saw uh, specifically as it relates to H.R. McMaster, uh, the former general appearing on uh, the news this weekend and talking about Donald Trump and Afghanistan. I'm going to play that clip and then uh, get your reaction to it. Absolutely. Our secretary of state signed a surrender agreement to the Taliban. This collapse goes back to the capitulation agreement of 2020. I mean, the, you know, the Taliban didn't defeat us. We defeated ourselves. Okay, that's H.R. McMaster saying that uh, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, signed a surrender agreement with the Taliban. What do you make of H.R. McMaster saying that? I think H.R. McMaster is correct in some respects and incorrect in others. Um, 
I think that this was a this was a losing effort from the very beginning. When you have a war without an exit strategy, it's a losing effort. Like eventually you're going to have to leave. And there are still people there. And there, and the longer you stay there, there are going to be people uh, who resent your presence. You know, who likes to walk out of their house and see a military presence? You know, um, I think that that frustrates anybody and it makes them frustrated with the people who are, who are there and they feel occupied. Even if it's their own military, they still feel occupied. So um, I think... You know, there was there's pretty much no way that we were going to, you know, quote unquote, win in this scenario. Um, so it was kind of a losing effort. Um, I was listening to there was a Navy SEAL, the one who actually shot OBL mm-hmm. and Rob O'Neill, Rob O'Neill and Rob O'Neill. And one of the things that I've met a couple SEALs and I know you've probably met, you know, a couple of SEALs and Special Forces guys. And one of the things you have to love about those guys, whether you agree with them politically or not, is the swagger with which they walk. Like, right. these guys are like, I don't believe in this construction of an alpha male, but if there is a such thing, you know, a lot of those guys, like, you know, you got to like that, you know. Um, and Rob O'Neill came out and said that he could clear and get everybody out of uh Kabul all the Americans out of Kabul with 12 guys he said give me 12 guys I could get them out um now the reason I bring that up is because I always wonder you know did we need a war to get bin Laden you know and did we need a a war to get rid of the leadership of al-Qaeda that was in Afghanistan and you know eventually in Pakistan do, do we actually need all of that? And, and you know, I, I tend to believe that we probably didn't. We probably needed 12 Ron, O'Ne- uh, Ron O'Neill's. That's an actor that played Superfly. Uh, what, <laughs> Rob. What was his, Rob O'Neill. We yeah. probably needed, you know, uh, 12 <laughs> Rob O'Neill's, you know, um, to go in there yeah. and handle the job that, that we wanted. Well, that's and what I we think- did. That's what we did at the beginning, man. That was all, all of our uh, special operators went in at the very beginning, this late 2001, right in Afghanistan, uh, and blew stuff up, killing bad guys, interrogating people, and ran al-Qaeda right out of Afghanistan, right over the mountains into Pakistan. Uh, and yeah, that was a lot of that was special operations in, at the very beginning. And then all of a sudden, we had this big ground troop presence and started bringing in more people. And then the mission sort of sprawled out of control in Afghanistan into these gigantic uh, and, and now now crystal clear impossible visions of how that country would be remade. Um, so you're right. I mean, that's that was precisely the strategy that worked. And a lot of people now looking back in retrospect saying. Yes. I mean, that the goal was decimate Al-Qaeda, get bin Laden and get out. Right. And, and that's exactly what we should have done. Um, you know, it's, it's disappointing um, that there are people out there that think that the way that we've handled this for the last 20 years is a good idea. And there are people out there who say, hey, we should have stayed in forever and we should have always had this kind of presence um, and, I, and I totally disagree with that. I think we handled it wrong from the very beginning. And as I've said many times, I won't sit there. And I don't think H.R. McMaster is saying this. I mean, we played a clip. Um, I think overall, the context of what he's saying is that every administration bears responsibility 
including the Trump administration. So all these Trump officials who are, you know, lobbing, you know, political grenades at the Biden administration and at the mm -hmm. Biden intelligence community uh, is missing the fact that they did negotiate a surrender with the Taliban and did not include the Afghan government, you know, and that totally delegitimized the Taliban to the point where, uh, excuse me, to the, the, the Afghan government, to the point which was already unpopular, to the point where the Taliban was able to walk in and win essentially a bloodless war. I won't say bloodless. I mean, they shot a couple of people, but for the most part, they walked in with bribes and said, look, you don't like the government. The Americans doesn't even, they don't even respect the government. They respect us. So it's inevitable that we are going to take over. We signed an agreement. We have pictures next to the uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. So look, this is, you know, in, in the street, there's an old saying, you either get down or lay down, you know, which means, look, you can, you know, drug dealers used to go into communities and say, look, you can either get down with what we're doing and make money with us, or you can get laid down. Like we'll come in and we'll roll over top of you and you can end up in a morgue. Mm -hmm. And I think that's essentially what the Taliban did throughout Afghanistan, um, where it was like, look, we can pay you, you can do okay, or you know, we can roll over top of you either way. And the Americans aren't going to save you. And that was, I think, what H.R. McMaster is pointing at. But that's not to say that the Trump administration is the only administration that bears responsibility. The Biden administration bears responsibility. The Obama administration bears responsibility. And certainly the W. Bush administration bears responsibility in this whole thing. Yeah. And again, as you you know, as you point out, it's like you've got multiple administrations who had indicated that they wanted to get out of Afghanistan. You had uh, President Trump get a plan in motion uh, that was supposed to come to fruition in May. Uh, Joe Biden changed the terms of that deal so that it would happen first on September 11th. And then they decided that the visuals of the 20th anniversary of September 11th weren't a good time to leave Afghanistan. So they moved it up a bit to the end of August. Uh, and in so doing, you know, you, you knew you had an end date, yet we still have the catastrophe of the exit with, you know, up to 15,000 Americans who were immediately stranded in Afghanistan, so many special immigration uh, visas that need to be uh, deployed to people who are interpreters who are, or who have otherwise assisted the United States. And now, as of this morning, Jason, we're seeing this threat from the Taliban because uh, a couple of officials now have answered questions to include President Biden. Uh, that, hey, what happens if there are still Americans in Afghanistan after August 31st? Will we extend our presence there long enough to get every American out? And the administration has been signaling, yes, we're going to do whatever it takes to get these Americans out, including staying beyond August 31st. The Taliban out with a threat this morning saying there will be consequences if the United States does that, because it'll be in violation of the terms of its deal to leave. Uh, again, this is the modified Biden version of this exit deal that they're referring to. Um, I, what I'm hoping for this morning, and, I, and by the time we get this broadcast becomes public, Jason, um, is a strong response from the Biden administration, a strong one to the Taliban saying back the hell off because we are going to get every American out. Uh, that that's, that's the, that's the agreement. And, uh, and if that doesn't happen, lethal force is implied. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, and, um, I think, you know, the Taliban, you know, I think they're kind of blustering right now. But, you know, I, I, I hope that uh, the Biden administration does make a strong statement that, you know, you cannot put Americans in danger. 
uh, and that Americans need to be able to exit your country. Um, and if not, there, there will be serious consequences um, that the Taliban is not worried about or, or should be worried about because of course, uh, we ran them out of their own country before. So, you know, they, they, can, they can get it again, essentially. Yeah. Um, I, I also just want to give a quick shout out. And I, and I, well, first of all, I think you, you made a really good point um, about the special visa program. And I think that, you know, and mark this date on your calendars because I'm actually going to give a slight, a slight excuse to the Trump administration. Because there's certainly, I think the, the Biden administration and what Tony Blinken and others have said is correct, that that special visa program was essentially suspended in March 2020, uh, which totally is why it's backlogged, why we have such trouble getting some of the Afghans out, especially. Um, but I think we have to also put this in context. What happened in March 2020? You know what I mean? Like, we have to also say, while this is a mess, and like I said, the end of wars is always a mess. Like, I think that there is a little bit of a caveat um, that you can give, or, or there should be some sort of a, an asterisk um, for the Trump administration, even when you're blaming them for this special visa program being suspended. We have to remember the world turned upside down in March, mm -hmm. 2020. People weren't working in offices, you know, like, uh, I, I assume, and I don't know this, but, you know, when you're on your home computer, you don't have the same security. So you probably can't access the same materials and all kinds of things uh, were probably thrown off um, with this process. So uh, I think rather than just, you know, throwing it, the blame at the Trump administration completely, we can also blame it on the virus itself um, and how that literally changed the world and the world basically went on hiatus for, yeah. you know, eight to 12 months, maybe more. Um, so I, 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 with this special visa program and with some of the disaster in getting particularly the Afghans out, um, I think that we have to put this in context and understand that the Biden and the Trump administration had a difficult situation here to deal with. And when the Trump administration negotiated in February, 2020, the issue was, you know, every, there were a lot of people who didn't think the virus was, was gonna be that serious. And then March had smacked us in the face and then everything went on, you know, kind of pause. Um, and now uh, trying to kind of go along with the deal that was made in February before the virus was, you know, universally recognized as a, ex, you know, existential threat to humanity, you know. Um, yeah, it was disruptive. It locked a lot yeah. of things down. Yeah, it, it ruined a lot of things. And one last thing, and I know I've been talking a lot and I'm going to pass it over, but um, I want to give a shout out to Ahmad Masood. Um, have you heard about this guy? Tell me about Ahmad. No. So Ahmad Masood is uh, an Afghan, uh, and he is the son of one of the main resistance leaders uh, to the Taliban 20 years ago. And he is demanding a comprehensive government um, from the Taliban that includes people who are not Taliban members. 
And he says that he will not back down to the Taliban and is warning that the Taliban, that there will be a war uh, if the Taliban does not comply to having a representative government that includes uh, people who are not members of the Taliban. And, you know, I, like we talked about, some the resistance has to come from within Afghanistan, uh, from the Afghan people. If they are dissatisfied or don't want the Taliban, they've got to stand up and fight. And that's what Ahmad Massoud is doing, or at least is saying he's going to do, and I assume he has a following. Um, so I think that that's important, you know, and, and I agree with what Biden and the Biden administration were saying, yes, we'll support you with air support or whatever it is that you need, but you've got to initiate it. You've got to fight. You've got to fight for your own freedom. And I think that too, you know, again, I, I haven't made a full decision about this, but when we're talking about taking people out of Afghanistan, like, you know, maybe some of those people should remain in Afghanistan. You know what I mean? Like, if we take out all of the people who would resist the Taliban, then the, then we're just ceding the country to the Taliban. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think, you know, sometimes I think this, and, and I understand that, you know, there are a lot of people who will attack that point, particularly from my side of the uh, of things. Um, you know, I, I, I do understand that some of these, you know, interpreters and all that need to get out, but you know, every single Afghan in Kabul who wants to get out, I think some of them, you know, have to remain because there has to be a resistance presence in there to the Taliban. It's a smart point. I, you know, it's funny. You've said it before here and, and I'll, and, uh, and now you've repeated it, of course, just now. I, you never hear anybody talk about that, but that there are trade-offs to all of this. And so what's lost by people leaving Afghanistan who have a sincere love of country and a sincere contempt for the people who uh, are trying to wreck that country, you know, what, what effect does that have? It's at least deserving of a conversation. Uh, and it's not one that you're going to hear in, in any real, really almost any corner of the press, uh, except for right here on Vincent Jason, save the nation. Um, I want to talk about the vice president of the United States. She, had, she has a, uh, an Asian tour she's doing right now. She landed in Singapore this weekend. And when she did, the first thing she did upon descending Air Force Two, two was to walk towards the press. And over the roar of the engines from the plane, uh, some of the reporters started shouting questions to her about Afghanistan. Um, this moment has become uh, pretty viral this weekend, getting around, uh, especially places like Twitter. Take a look. I'm going to show you. Here's Kamala Harris arriving in Singapore. What's your response to reports of Americans? Oh, hold on, hold on. Slow down, everybody. <laughs> I want to talk about two things. First, Afghanistan. We couldn't have a higher priority right now. And in particular, our priority is making sure that we safely evacuate American citizens, Afghans who work with us, Afghans at risk, including women and children. And that is one of our highest, if not the highest priority right now. All right, Jason, that, that clip's getting a lot of action, mostly because her first reaction was to laugh as the reporter was shouting a question to her about Afghanistan. It's not clear to me that Kamala Harris could hear precisely uh, what the reporter was was asking. Uh, she clearly wanted to give a statement of some kind. But what's the deal with, I, I guess, it's kind of a routine thing. Kamala Harris will quite often laugh and during very serious moments. Um, is she stalling for time? What's Is this a nervous tick of hers? 
I think there are a lot of people who laugh at inappropriate moments. I think there are a lot of people, if you, again, and this is what we try to do here on Vincent Jason Save the Nation is like, let's take some of the, the politics out of it and try to look at people as human beings first. Right. Um, and I think when you look at her as a human being, there's no one here, even the guy who's in the comments, who's like, you know, you know, Trump really won or whatever, you know, e even that guy knows somebody who laughs at inappropriate moments because, you know, maybe they're, you know, like you said, it's a nervous reaction, a nervous tick. Um, and I think that's just something that she does. Um, is it the, the, the best and most appropriate reaction? Of course not. But I think we all know people who who do that to try to calm themselves down a lot of times. So they don't come in looking like they're frantic or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they, they have a nervous laugh. Um, and I think if we just take a quick second and just look at Kamala Harris as a human being, then we're like, okay. And, and I think your, your point about her not being able, you know, we got to remember, you can hear a jet engine in the background. Like, yeah, I'm not certain, you know, that, she heard what was being said. She just heard herself being shouted at. And she was like, wait a minute, hold on. Right. Let me actually just say something first. I may answer your question before you even ask it. Um, and I think that was kind of her point. Um, but like as to your point about her laughing oftentimes at inappropriate moments, I think there are lots of people who do that. That's just a nervous reaction. And it's a pretty common one. And I think if we start looking at people as human beings instead of as red or blue, you know, I think people would, would understand that a little bit. I think she is very sensitive to the way that she's portrayed in the media and is, is super concerned about what people think of her. Um, the laugh to me when she does this and she's done it a lot, as, as we've pointed out, like where she's, for instance, when she was sitting down with Lester Holt and she was, she kind of like was chuckling through some of his questions about the border. And then she was like, and I haven't been to Europe when, you know, she was like, I, I think, I think a lot of this is honestly is insecurity on display. And we've seen some, um, some reporting that she tracks her press clippings really closely. She doesn't like being referred to as cautious. Edward Isaac Dovier had reported this. She doesn't like being uh, considered cautious. She kind of keeps track of which reporters report on her and what they say about her. Um, she's, and I, and I, this is not an unusual feature of a politician, by the way, lots of politicians do this. They, they, they get really obsessive over the way that news outlets cover them. Uh, and I think that it's really true in her case, you know, she's gotten all these, these, these big tasks that, uh, have shown like, especially on the border, it, it just shown no meaningful sign, signs of progress. And I think she's really nervous about, um, how she's being covered. So when she gets a question shattered at her, I think her laughter is kind of a defense mechanism. Like, hey, like, I want you to think I'm like a friendly, lighthearted person, right? Like, that's where she, that's the energy she's trying to project. Like, oh, yes, okay, no, I've got it together. And she's like kind of laughing her way through the spectacle that's in front of her. These reporters shouting things. She's not even sure what they're really shouting about. She's laughing at them to try and basically set the tone for, hey, I'm a friendly person. And like, and now I'm going to lay out what we're, we're focused on. That's what it seems to me. It's like, it's like she's trying to manage the way people perceive her 
through these like forced sort of nervous bouts of laughter uh, that like, oh yeah, I've got it totally together. And, and it's, it's projection. It's like, it's a way of saying like, Hey, believe that I have a lighthearted attitude about all of these things. I may be wrong, but that's, that's what I'm picking up from her. Well, I, I think that there's a whole lot of truth to that. I, I think you're, you're, um, you're actually correct about that, but if I can enter something into the conversation that I know is always uncomfortable for people on the daily caller, but, um, I think, you know, there is a stereotype about African-American women um, that they're difficult and hard to get along with and angry. And I think Kamala Harris is conscious of that. And she doesn't want to be um, portrayed as an angry Black woman. So how do you do, how do you stop that? I mean, Michelle Obama, you remember how many times the, the media, particularly the right-wing media, but media in general, would always say that she scowls or that she looks angry, you know what I mean? And say different things of, about her. Um, and it was clear, <clears throat> we never heard those things about Barbara Bush. We never heard those things about Laura Bush. Um, we never heard those things, well, maybe about Hillary Clinton. You know, but, you know, but another, never um, many others. And there is a, a long standing stereotype of the angry black woman that they're hard to get along with, that they're hard to deal with. And you can imagine how hard that is in politics. You know, when people think you're angry and hard to get along with, you're mm -hmm. not going to get very far in politics that way. Um, not nationally, maybe locally, but not nationally. Um, so, I think um, she does want to be seen as being pleasant, you know, um, pleasant, but competent. And that's a really fine line um, that men don't have to deal with generally in politics. Men don't have to be pleasant. I mean, we, you know, the last four years show us that men just don't have to be pleasant people, you know, um, and, but yet, you know, that's a pressure that's put upon women. And that's certainly a pressure that's put upon black women because of the stereotype of being angry. And she saw what happened to Michelle Obama, who's not an elected official, has no desire to be an elected official, um, and still got that, um, basically for simply existing. So I think she's very conscious about that. I think she is a little bit insecure, like, like you said, most politicians are. Um, and I think she's, you know, she's a little worried about that, you know, that stereotype taking root. So what does she do? She tries to play nice. She brings out cookies to the press, you know, um, she tries to, you know, try to have this image, uh, you know, this softer image, mm. you know, soft, but competent. And that's really hard. And I, I, I understand, I empathize a little bit with her, um, in those moments, but I, I think you, you're right. It is kind of a nervous tick and it does come from insecurity. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to assess, I guess, you know, without data to support it, the role that any particular stereotype, racial or, or gender-based stereotype could play in something like this. My guess is she probably, uh, and this is one of the ways that her circle has defended her is like, well, the bar is higher for her because she's black and she's a woman. Um, that probably is the kind of thing that she's thinking of and that may be animating some of the behavior that we're seeing from her. Um, 
But the the trick I think to life is, first of all, on if you're on camera a lot, people can detect your phoniness. I like I hate to tell you, like, but and Kamala Harris knows this, or she should know this. They can detect when you're being phony. So if Kamala Harris has um, the capacity for kindness, she should just live it out the way she would normally among among her family and friends. And people respect competence. I don't think it matters what gender you are. Um, you know, if you if you're if you have a competence, if you can demonstrate leadership, uh, people will see it. So I I'd prefer I'd really like it. And this is just this is I, what I'd like to see out of politicians generally is if people are just who they are, you know, like stop trying to fake it uh, because faking it is the kind of thing that actually uh, pushes people away from you because they can sense it. It's like women who can detect phoniness in men. They just have a sixth sense. They know. Um, and it's, I think it's true of voters and viewers. Like you can detect phoniness. Um, you know, I think I do think men are held to a standard of, of needing to demonstrate empathy. And when Trump didn't demonstrate that empathy or when people thought that he was inadequately doing that, he was in for serious rounds of criticism constantly uh, for that. Hard for me to remember the specific criticisms of, of Laura and especially Barbara Bush. Uh, given how young I was at the time Barbara Bush was in the White House. But um, I do think that anybody who's in the limelight, anybody who wields power, anybody who's uh, politically active is going to be judged for their behavior, uh, even in their small moments. So the goal should be to live life authentically uh, and, um, you know, and try and get away from people needing to front some sort of phony uh, 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 presence in order to convince voters to like them, because in the end, I think it's just going to blow back against them. Voters can smell it. No, I, I agree. Um, I think we we have to live our reality. I think part of Kamala Harris's reality is probably that she smiles and laughs and, you know, is, is pleasant. I think that's probably who she is um, with regard to. Uh, so I think, you know, this whole phony thing, I think the phony seems to get lobbed again. Um, a lot of that seems to get lobbed at women. Uh, you know, I'm, that's just something that I've, I've noticed, you know, the phony politician oftentimes gets lobbed at women. I'm not saying exclusively. There's certain, certainly uh, politicians that we can say, oh, this person's phony or that person's phony. Well, Andrew Cuomo right. leaps directly to the front of the line in my mind. Um, so I, in that case, it's not a gendered criticism. I, I yeah, see a I lot mean, of phoniness in politicians. No, no, definitely. But I, I you know, we, we heard that. And also the, the highest profile woman, black woman in politics, even though she wasn't an elected official, again, I'll go back to Michelle Obama. And what did the right wing media call her? A baby mama. You know, they called her when she- Who said you know, that? Who, somebody that called her Fox a baby News. mama? Yeah, Fox News. They said Obama's baby mama. Is what they referred to her as. Really? Um, yeah, pretty disgusting to me. I don't know, it's not even funny. It's also um, not even like a good category for her. She's like actually married to him. Right. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the whole point, you know what I mean? And and then um, the you know the they you know they called her an ape in heels. They they said all kinds of really disgusting things about her. And I I do think. And then again, you also look at Hillary Clinton, and the whole thing was. Um, if she tried to smile and be nice, that she was being phony. If she was, you know, kind of stoic, she was, uh, you know, she was heartless and cruel 
Um, so I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's kind of a no-win situation. Um, and I think that, I think that uh, Kamala Harris is trying to balance that in, mm. in the best way that she possibly can. And, you know, one of the things, one of my favorite lines by Drake is, you know, he's talking, you know, essentially about, you know, the criticisms that he receives. And he says, you know, good ain't good enough. And my hood ain't hood enough. You know what I mean? Nothing is going to be good enough. So I, I agree with you in terms of authenticity. It's something that I've learned, you know, just from doing media. You know, uh, I do a lot of right wing media. And there's nothing that's going to de-racist the people who are racist against me. There's nothing that's going to make the people who hate my politics actually listen to me and, you know, see me as a human being. Like, there's nothing really that I can do. So all I can do is be my authentic self. And, I, you know, I, I totally take what you're saying. Um, and I, I, the only thing, the only disagreement that I think we have is that I'm not so sure that what you're seeing in Kamala Harris isn't part of her authentic self. You know what I mean? Like they call her Mamala and she's, you know, she is the like gregarious person that laughs at the party is what I've heard from everyone who I know who's, who's actually met her. I've never met her. Um, so I think that that part of yeah. her is, is authentic. We all have like the laughing part of us than the angry part of us. And, you know, the thing is, I think she can't, she feels that she can't really display that angry part. Yeah. I mean, there's the other side too. It's like, you see all these reports, like she's one of the few politicians in Washington who doesn't have any uh, loyalists, really. I mean, she doesn't have longtime staffers, high turnover, right. very high turnover. And that that's usually a tell that they're, somebody's difficult to work for and that the environment's not very healthy. Um, there are politicians in DC that have tremendous longevity on their staff. That's just not Kamala Harris. Uh, yeah. And so- She hasn't when, been in Washington that long either, so- No, that's true. Yeah. But as a Senator, I mean, she's already got a bunch of former employees from her office as vice president from this year. Uh, and yeah. so, so I don't, you know, I don't know what that says, but as I look at it holistically, it's like, something's not right. That's all. Um, no, I, I agree with that. I, I think, um, people forget that the reason that she shut down her, uh, presidential campaign was because of the dysfunction in her office and that they ran out of money, even though they came from California, a big donor state. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there, there's really some serious issues and, you know, shout out to my grandmother, who is a huge fan of Kamala Harris, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, because they're, they're both like kind of, you know, black sorority women and things like that. But I'm like, look, you know, she obviously is not necessarily good at running an office and that kind of leadership. Um, I would argue Trump isn't either, if you want to talk about turnover, but, you know, uh, but she's she's not necessarily very good at that. And we saw that even when she was D.A. or excuse me, state's attorney, um, you know, some of those death row cases where the, the person was exonerated and they fought to keep her in there. And Kamala Harris's response was essentially that she didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And I believe her. I believe she didn't know. But what does that say about her leadership? I mean, you it was a big I mean? deal. She was withholding evidence that would exonerate people on death row it's a huge deal yeah no and i i i think she was not aware of what was going on i actually believe her at her word but my thing is uh 
that says something about your ability to lead the office. Right. That prosecutors are making decisions on their own without checking with you. And I think that that's really problematic when you are the, the person who's going to be ultimately held responsible. Yeah. And so I, I, I would agree there. That's why, you know, I'm, I haven't necessarily, you know, been a Kamala Harris supporter. I'll always mm-hmm. stand up when I think someone's being char- mischaracterized or, or treated unfairly. I don't care if you're left or right. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. If you're being treated unfairly, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be the person who's going to speak up. You know, um, even, yeah. you know, like I just said about the Trump administration in March 2020, you know, uh, I think it's pretty clear that I don't like the guy. But I, I think if you're you have to put things in context and I'll stand up for her. But I don't necessarily think she has, you know, maybe this is something she's learning, but I, I don't think she necessarily has a handle on certain things. I do uh, think that in this case, the criticism is unfair. Right on. All right. Well, then let's jump over to Liz Cheney. She was on uh, one of the Sunday shows this weekend uh, talking about Afghanistan. Here's what she had to say. We need to have leaders who will tell the public what's necessary, who will help to explain why, in fact, we need to have a presence on the ground in Afghanistan. So when you've got three presidents in a row having said we have to get out, I don't think... Even President Bush was trying to find a way out, as we're now learning in an IG report. I don't think that there's any question, but that we have to maintain, we needed to maintain a presence on the ground. 3,500 forces, counterterrorism operations, counterintelligence operations, that allowed us to have the kind of uh, assurance that the Taliban would not, in fact, take over as they have done and, and create now a brand new safe haven. And, it, and again, it's not just the Taliban. It's the Haqqani Network. It's al-Qaeda. Uh, you've got ISIS. You have, you know, the very groups, particularly al-Qaeda, that attacked us 20 years ago from bases in Afghanistan now back into a position where they can do the same again. Okay, so it turns out one of the members of the Cheney family is for staying in Afghanistan. Are you shocked? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, this is this is breaking news. This is utterly shocking. <laughs> uh, you know, I I personally am floored. Um, you know, I Liz Cheney's going Cheney. You know, and Cheney that, you know Cheney going Cheney. Um, you know, I I was you know I I gotta say though, twenty years removed, and you know her father has passed on. Um, no, did, not yet. <laughs> oh, he's not. Oh, no. damn. My bad. <laughs> I'm putting him in the grave early. Yo, my bad, no. Dick. Um, no, I, I thought he would pass. Damn. Um, you may be thinking of John McCain, but no. No, uh, I know John Dick, McCain. Dick passed. Cheney's. Dick Cheney's still here. Dick still with Cheney's us. Still here. Damn, my bad. I, I guess because we don't hear from him. Um, and and I'm so glad we're not hearing from him on, on this issue in particular. Uh, yeah, this is. I mean, this was the whole thing. He wanted an endless war and mm-hmm. wanted to think in that Cold War mentality of like keeping troops in every country around the world to establish some sort of empire. We're in a different time frame. Um, and this is this is just whack. Americans don't want it. And I think if you listen to the rest of that uh, interview, she basically, uh, one of the things that Chuck Todd says is Chuck Todd is like, look, the American people didn't want to stay in Afghanistan. You know, shouldn't our leaders listen to the American people? And she's like, no, I think it's the opposite. I think we're the leaders and we tell the people, you know, what should happen. And I was like, 
you sound like the Taliban. Like, like that's crazy. Like, I understand there are certain times, there are certain times where I think a leader has to stand up on principle uh-huh. and say, look, this is wrong, even though it's unpopular, um, you know, and not just go with the political wins. Well, this sick. is, yeah, this is, uh, you know, you know this better than I do, but this is the distinction in political science between being a delegate versus a trustee uh, in, in government, right? Where we, we hire people who know better than us, therefore they're, there are trustees in the government, or they're merely delegates, vessels through which the opinion of the public flows. Here's my thing, though. Like all of our safeguards in representative democracy, which were designed to, um, in our republic, our democratic republic, which were designed to sort of slow down the pace of simple shifts in the majority, right? That's why we don't have a, a simple direct democracy voting up and down on every issue. Um all of those safeguards that have been built in. Look, we've had multiple administrations of different political parties. We've had changes between the House and the Senate of different political parties. And the only constant in terms of growth, in terms of public opinion over the course of several different administrations that didn't really change that much has been get us out of Afghanistan. So it's not like it was dependent on when Trump was in office, Democrats still wanted to get out. With, right. with Joe Biden in office, Republicans still want to get out. This is about as ubiquitous of a position that the American public has taken on almost any issue. I mean, there's very little agreement in the United States on so many issues. But on this one, 70% of the public, as or, or earlier this year, wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Right. And so at some point, you have to be like, oh, yeah, well, the public actually is kind of in charge of this. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why it definitely was one of the reasons Obama was elected and didn't succeed in doing it. Donald Trump was elected, didn't succeed in doing it, although setting it in motion. And Joe Biden uh, was elected on one of these promises. This is something that he promised to do during his campaign. And so now this is the fulfillment of one of those commitments. And people voted for the guy with an expectation that he would live up to those commitments. So that's the public side of it. Here's, here's where I'm open-minded to what Liz Cheney said. And I don't know what the answer is. But I've heard a bunch of smart people say this, and, I, and, and I'm concerned about it too. How do we prevent terror from blossoming in Afghanistan without any physical presence on the ground? Is it possible for us to continue to have human intelligence sources without us having troops, without us having an embassy, without us having a small footprint? I mean, I've been for getting out of Afghanistan because it makes sense to me that we not overextend ourselves in a place without a clear national interest to the United States of America for as long as we have. Uh, but there is that part where people keep saying, well, we got to be careful. There's this growth potentially of meaningful terror threats to the United States. And what I'd like to hear now is somebody to make that case to me, make that case that there, there will be meaningful terror threats to the United States uh, and that they will grow in Afghanistan and that we are just completely handicapped from stopping them. Because, you know, we're a powerful country, powerful surveillance capabilities. Joe Biden keeps referring to over the horizon capabilities. Will those be enough to safeguard us? And is that a good position for us to be in? I think I think your question is a really good one. Um, I, I think I'm going to take a guess. But again, I'm not a national security expert or anything like that. But, you know, there, there's an old saying, you know, at least for the last 20 years in hip hop. And that is, you know, bad boys move in silence. Um, Biggie used to always say it. And Mm -hmm. so the way I think that that relates here 
is that you put, and I promise I'm not trying to be Michael Eric Dyson by quoting a bunch of biggie lines, but. <laughs> Wait, who's the one who said real G's move in silence like lasagna? Oh, it was Lil Wayne. Yeah, that's even, <laughs> that's an even better one. You know, real G's move in silence like lasagna. Um, one of my favorite lines. That's actually even better. Um, so the, the whole thing, the reason I bring that up, and, and it goes with the whole thing that I was saying that we may not have needed a war. Um, rather than having troops and, and making a lot of people in Afghanistan, believe it or not, resented our presence there, as they should. I think most countries, even like I said, our own country, we resent having a military presence rolling through our streets, you know, because then it shows that we really don't have a whole lot of autonomy. Um, but, and, and people crave that. People crave freedom. I don't care where you are in the world, you know, people want to feel like they have some level of freedom. And I think that with, you know, we can have a better intelligence presence with probably a few operatives, a few people infiltrating the, the Taliban, um, a few informants, the CIA, you know, that kind of intelligence presence you know, that we probably have in every country in the world. I think we need that in Afghanistan rather than a bunch of dudes in uniform, you know, a bunch of 18 year olds in uniform patrolling, you know, with M4s. I, I, I think that we, we probably would have a stronger presence um, by doing it that way. And then saying, whoa, this is, this is a real threat. This is what they're planning. You know, what course of action should we take? Should we take out the leader? You know, somehow, should, you know, should we, and I know this is sounding really bad. Somebody's like, he's talking about assassinating leaders and stuff like that. But, you know, what should be the course of action? If the, the ultimate course of action is we need to bring in Green Berets or we need to bring in Navy SEALs and, and we need to take some action that way, some sort of military operation that way, mm -hmm. then yeah, that's on the table. But I think there are ways to monitor terror that are more effective than just having a you know a blockade of soldiers and and marines there i i just don't think that that's i think we should move like lasagna move be like the lasagna, lasagna. <laughs> or colonnades there you go real or colonnades. <laughs> i always uh, call you colonnades, but you know it's okay that's all right i appreciate it <laughs> uh jason nichols thanks man i i think um you know it's always interesting to watch these sunday shows and get and get a reaction especially get your reaction to to everything that's going down Afghanistan this week, uh, man. And uh, I expect this will be an issue we're going to have to focus on for a while uh, because it's a tough one. It's a lot, a lot of Americans still need to get out of that country. And as a result, we're going to keep following it right here on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Make sure to like, subscribe, share, comment, anywhere you can find the podcast, especially on YouTube, to make sure that lots of other people get to see it as well. Jason Nichols, thanks so much, sir. Of course. Thank you.